Each year, hundreds of thousands of adults over the age of 60 are abused, neglected, or financially exploited. Join me this week for a conversation with Michaela Monday and Almatayo Daniels, human services clinicians with Arlington Adult Protective Services. We just want to make sure that the person is safe. That's our role, to make sure that they are safe and in their home and they have capacity to make decisions. Hello, and welcome to Aging Matters, a program featuring timely aging topics for older adults and their families. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Each year, hundreds of thousands of adults over the age of 60 are abused, neglected, or financially exploited. This mistreatment is called elder abuse and can have serious physical and emotional effects on older adults. Today, my guests are Michaela Monday and Omatayo Daniels, human services clinicians with Adult Protective Services at Arlington County, Virginia, Department of Human Services. They will describe differences between elder abuse, neglect, and exploitation, and give examples of how each may be experienced among older adults. They'll also discuss adult protective services, including how this program helps victims of these practices and what is being done to prevent violence directed against our older population members. So welcome, Michaela and Amatayo, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. In my interviews, I like to kind of set the stage, and we're going to start with you, Amatayo, about defining elder abuse. Explain also what are the warning signs of elder abuse, and when these are happening, are older adults often reluctant to talk about the signs? What do we need to know about this? Elder abuse is physical abuse, mental abuse, financial exploitation, or neglect, as well as an elder neglecting their own needs. Signs of this may be unpaid bills, hitting, bruising of unknown origin, maybe a change in a will or power of attorney, things of that nature, but those are the basics. To that point then, Omatayo, are older adults often reluctant to talk about these signs, whether they're aware of them or not? Yes, older adults don't openly talk about different things that they may be experiencing for various reasons. The fear of being removed from their home or losing their independence, Also, many times the perpetrator is a family member or someone who they trust. And there are conflicts with not wanting to get family members or friends in trouble, but also being afraid because they are dependent on these people for their care needs. Michaela, let's pick up on that. Um, Amatayo talked a little bit about family. Is that usually the case that the elder abuse occurs within the family and What other types of abusers might there be? Not only who might be involved, but where elder abuse might also occur. Research shows that in almost 60% of elder abuse and neglect incidents, the perpetrator is a family member. And this is often seen when adult children are caretakers for their aging parents. Like Omatayo mentioned, dependent on these caregivers. They trust them. They rely on them for the things that they can't manage on their own. And in these situations, the abuse typically takes place in the individual's home or the home of the caregiver. 
But in terms of other types of abusers, we often see with intimate partners or extended family and also in facilities such as nursing homes or assisted living facilities. And it could also even be somebody who's not even known to the individual. We mostly see that in cases of financial exploitation. Um, we see the highest number of cases related to self-neglect in which the individual is actually the one neglecting to address their own needs. So whether that be medical needs, like staying connected to a doctor or taking their prescribed prescriptions, um, lack of access to food or neglect of their hygiene, hoarding is an example of self-neglect. So uh, when keeping in mind, we're often engaging with people who are isolated or estranged from family or experiencing cognitive decline, which makes them more vulnerable for abuse, neglect, or exploitation. Let's talk a, a little bit more about the family members. Uh, we don't want to stereotype uh, what a family member who abuses an older adult might have, but have you found in your uh, practice that there might be certain common characteristics that a family member might have that could lead to or does lead to um, abuse of some sort? Sure. Yeah, I think we often see situations of caregiver burnout, especially when that person is the sole caregiver. And when considering the condition of the individual being cared for, there's just so many needs that they might have based on their cognitive abilities and changes due to diagnoses, for example, of dementia or physical changes following a stroke or even just normal age-related decline. And a lot of the time, caregivers end up neglecting their own needs in order to care for the individual by prioritizing their needs. And at some point, that just may no longer be sustainable. We also see situations in which an adult child um, just for example, maybe dealing with their own personal issues and have access to their aging parents' finances, making it easier to take advantage, or um, due to mental health challenges, they just have a difficult time being patient and appropriately serving as the caregiver for their parent, which can result in acting aggressively or completely neglecting them. Um, so there is a variety of characteristics that that we do see in people who abuse older adults. So it's definitely something to to look at. It's not only just the older adult themselves, but the the family member as well. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Omatayo, you had mentioned about long-term care settings, and I think Michaela did too. So let's talk about that. We often hear about long-term care settings that there can be risk factors for elder abuse. What what are the circumstances where that might happen? And uh, what should our listeners know about what might happen in long-term care settings as far as elder abuse? In long-term care settings, um, some of the risk factors are high turnover with staff or staff just simply not being trained on how to turn our elderly population or possibly staff not being trained on how to handle conflict within the long-term care facilities. Oftentimes, you will see elder abuse occurring more often with individuals whose family members don't visit often or at all. That population is much more vulnerable because there's no one checking in 
also in those long-term care facilities, the individual is oftentimes afraid to report things because these are people who they see on a daily basis. And again, they're very much so dependent on these people for their care. The characteristics of the older adults that experience elder abuse also may be those who can't get out of bed or individuals who are nonverbal. Sometimes we see financial exploitation when the adults, once they come into the facility, they might not log their materials that they're bringing or they may leave their money or things like that out and staff may pick it up. Self-neglect for the elders outside of long-term care may look like mismanagement of their medication, not going to their doctor's appointments, hoarding light and utility bills not being paid, sometimes rent is not paid, things of that nature. I wanted to just be sure that we were still talking about long-term care settings. Is that a part of what happens uh, in terms of long-term care settings, or is that something in terms of hoarding in that? Does that also happen in long-term care settings? Not in the long-term care settings, unless it is an elder, our 50 and older population homes, it can occur there. Um, and it that is mostly due to emotional risk. Maybe they had a spouse pass away or a child pass away, and the materials that they're holding on have some type of significance to them. I just wanted to focus a little bit more yet on long-term care settings. We hear so much now about uh, staff shortages and uh, other kind of situations, especially since COVID. Is the possibility of abuse or neglect increasing in long-term care settings? Yes, it certainly has increased after COVID. The positions are hard to fill, which leads to staff burnout. And so we have seen about a 10% increase since COVID with facility uh, reporting either neglect or abuse. Oftentimes it is neglect that is reported, such as residents not being changed in an adequate amount of time, if at all. Uh, also, medication management has also been an issue. Um, so one way that Adult Protective Services here in Arlington has been trying to help is by offering our services and trying to partner with those long-term care facilities, as well as offering trainings. Okay. And we're going to be talking more about your organization in a minute. But I wanted to ask you also, Amatayo, about the characteristics of older adults. Um, we talked a little bit already in terms of uh, possible cognitive issues. Expand on that. What might there be present within the older adult, the characteristics that increase their vulnerability to elder abuse? Oftentimes, what is reported are um, females reported for self-neglect. Males tend to go underneath the radar, and that is because not once a spouse passes away, there's not a lot of community support for males in our community. And so some of the characteristics of the more vulnerable population would be elderly without family um, or any kind of community connection. There's no one checking in on them, which leaves them vulnerable for things such as financial exploitation, because typically they are lonely where you hear about the social security scams 
or the sweetheart scams, um, mail coming in. It oftentimes with financial exploitation, it starts with someone calling. You'll find that the elder person tends to engage in the conversation because they are lonely because they don't have family checking on them and they're not connected to a community. Some self-neglect occurs, as I said before, because of maybe someone passing away and not wanting to give up those materials. And if you've lived in your home for 20, 30 years, you kind of just accumulate things, which even for individuals under 60, you'll find that you accumulate things, but it happens more with the elderly population, with them just accumulating things. And before you know it, there's a problem. And then because of their physical health, they're unable to kind of throw those things away. And that's when we get involved and we help clear out the home if they choose. And I was also wondering, in terms of vulnerability, uh, they might have some kind of disability. They might have uh, they might be in a wheelchair. I, I'm, I'm wondering whether, because obviously as older adults get older, they often have difficulties getting around and uh, this sort of thing. Might that make them more vulnerable to uh, some type of elder abuse? Oftentimes because they can't get out, they can't get to the groceries, they don't know about community resources that would help them do that. They're not going to doctor's appointments. And after some time, possibly because of depression, they just remain in the home. But again, as well, when people are not able to get out of their home, especially our elder population, and you just have aides coming in, but no family to check in on you, you are more vulnerable depending on who you're hiring, if you've done background checks on that person, are they coming from a licensed home health care agency, things of that nature. Well, you've been talking about self-neglect. And uh, in your experience, and Michaela, you can chime in on this as well, as since you are both uh, involved in, in serving the older adults in, in this realm, but is there a certain time, uh, an age, or in terms of uh, self-neglect that begins to occur in an individual's life? Uh, you've kind of given some examples already, but is it more circumstantial as opposed to a certain age when self-neglect might occur? Just wanted to make sure that we kind of understand that. And then take it one step further. What are some possible solutions? You, you've begun to talk about um, the protective services, but I'm just wondering how the uh, protective services uh, program helps for folks who may be dealing with self-neglect. The age population that we mostly see the reports come in for are between 65 up to 80. Um, I would venture to say that it is circumstantial. We receive reports of self-neglect for all different types of reasons. It could be hoarding. It could be medication mismanagement. It could be not following up with medical appointments that are necessary for their overall health. They might have been diagnosed with cancer or they might not be going to dialysis, things of that nature. And sometimes what you find when you go in for an investigation, especially individuals who are living alone, they have kind of accepted 
where they are in life and may not necessarily be motivated to continue living. That is actually sometimes, sadly, what what they say to us once we go in for an investigation. What we try to do is get them connected to community resources, either a day program. We try to clean up the home. We send aides in that are willing to offer them some comfort um, and companionship. That's really important. Those are the things that we try to put in place. We have power of attorneys that we put in place. And when needed, a guardian or a conservator to make sure that that individual is not being exploited or abused and finding them some housing. Even an assistant living facility offers a level of companionship. When you're dealing with this self-neglect, are family members very much involved or, uh, as you're trying to identify solutions? When family members are involved, we don't get many reports of the self-neglect. Oftentimes what has happened, because there may be some mental health issues that are going on, we find that the individual is either a strain from the family or the family has moved out of town and they come to visit during those big holidays like Christmas or 4th of July, Thanksgiving. We'll see an increase um, because someone didn't notice that mom or dad were living this way or grandma or granddad were living this way. And in those situations, luckily, the family really gets involved and you'll find sometimes that they'll move the elder person closer to them or do more check-ins or the family kind of takes over and puts those services in place to keep the individual safe inside of their home. Let's move on to another one of those categories under elder abuse, and this one's exploitation. You've mentioned a little bit about that already, but talk more about that. What what are you seeing? What are some examples of clients that you've had to um, investigate in this area of exploitation? Oftentimes with this population, we will see either social security scams, um, someone calling, pretending to be from social security, asking for your social security number, or there was an overpayment, or pretending as if there's some issue with your computer and asking for access to your computer. And the elderly individual is not, they don't know about these scams. And so they're very trusting and they'll give someone access to their computer. And now this person has access to your account information, your social security, and they're just making withdrawals at their leisure from your bank account. Sometimes someone call and, and pretend that they are calling from a Wells Fargo, a Bank of America. There's also online dating where they meet someone possibly is from a different country. It starts off asking for small amounts of money, which quickly turns into asking for thousands of dollars. And the thing that they get as well is companionship. And they've most of the time never seen this person before. The person promises to visit. The person talks to them for hours and they're giving this money. Also, what we have seen are stocks. Someone is creating a business and there's a stock and give me this amount of money and I will send you $10,000. And we come in and we explain, one, Social Security is never going to ask you for your Social Security number. 
over the phone. They're not going to do that. With someone asking for access to your computer, you always want to contact first your internet provider. The same thing with the bank. You want to call the bank yourself. You thank them for the information and then call your bank. There are times when we do have to put a guardian or a power of attorney in place because there may be some cognitive deficits where the person does not understand that. And so the county has to take it over in order to make sure that the person is safe. But those are our extreme measures. We try to do least invasive, um, either getting family involved or really, really working with the client to address the underlining issue that is going on. I'd also read recently about some company that has really uh, scammed the Medicare program. And I'm wondering if, um, in your experience, you've also seen the people that you see, clients uh, or older adults, uh, being charged for services that they, in fact, uh, never had. Yes, that occurs as well. Um either someone stopping by in the neighborhood or making a phone call saying that someone owes money and our elderly population, very trusting, and they'll go ahead and send the money. Um, Also, there have been times where someone will call and say that someone's grandchild is having an emergency situation and we need gift cards. Those are not trackable. And so the elderly person is ordering thousands of dollars of gift cards and putting them in the mail and their money is gone. I'm assuming that in terms of any possibility of Medicare scam, it's really important to remember not to give out the number on your Medicare card. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, Do not give any identifying information to anyone. Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, they would never call you and ask you for their information. They already have that information. So they don't need to ask you for it. They don't need to ask you for your date of birth. They have that information. And even if you don't believe that they have it or they'll say, just to make sure that it's you, I need you to provide this information, you tell them, thank you, but I'm going to call Social Security or Medicaid or Medicare myself and I'll provide the information at that time. What is a good number? Good advice. One other thing I wanted to ask you is you've really given an excellent uh, definitions of all of these possible examples of elder abuse. And so if an individual, like a family member or someone who is providing care, suspects that elder abuse is going on or self-neglect or elder exploitation, what actions do you recommend? If people are listening right now and they think, oh, wow, I know somebody who might be uh, a victim of one of these, what do you recommend in terms of action? I would recommend calling their local Adult Protective Services Agency and making a report of either financial exploitation, self-neglect, neglect, even mental abuse. Oftentimes, mental abuse is a prerequisite to things such as neglect, financial exploitation. You can find it online very easily. Here in Arlington, our number is the 703-228-1700. 
And there's a national hotline as well. Let's get back to you, Michaela. We've now got the telephone number, and I am going to call that number. And what is the person on the other end? I'm assuming you said that there's always a live person. It's not leaving a a message and having somebody call you back. What information is really essential for that caller to give to uh, the person who's answering the phone? Very good question. So the caller will be asked a series of questions to identify the individual who they believe is being abused, neglect, or exploited. So for example, the individual's name, their address, which is required in order to locate them, their date of birth or age to confirm the age criteria. Um, They'll be asked to provide the circumstances that describe the alleged abuse, neglect, exploitation, and other questions such as what's the physical and mental condition of the person, do they have any chronic health conditions, unmanaged diabetes, dementia, for example. They'll ask where the event occurred and if they have any information about the alleged perpetrator. Um, I do just want to mention, I know that making an APS report may seem daunting, especially if there's fear that the vulnerable adult or alleged perpetrator might become upset if they find out or fear of retaliation. So I want to mention that when reporters call in a report, they do have the option to be anonymous and their information will not be released to the individual as them being the one who called in the report. And another thing to remember is that a call to APS is not an accusation. It's really just a request to initiate a helping process. And even if the report doesn't meet criteria for an APS investigation, that doesn't mean that the county can't offer additional services. We have many other supportive programs within our division, which are all designed to support older and disabled adults in the community. So if you have question about whether or not you should call, you should always call. And then let's take that to the next step, Michaela. So somebody has made a, a call and has provided this information to um, Adult Protective Services or in, in that, that hotline, some of the, the um, issues that might be discussed could actually be criminal, I'm assuming, as well. And so with that said, might there be other agencies then that would need to, um, to follow up on the call? And how, how does that work? EPS is required to investigate all valid reports. So if the report meets criteria for APS, an investigation will be initiated. We have 24 hours to determine report validity and seven calendar days to make a face-to-face visit with the individual. So in situations like you mentioned where immediate action is needed, we may involve police or EMTs or other collateral parties such as licensing boards the type of allegation generates which other authorities we are required to notify. The next steps after making contact with the client would be, of course, to investigate the situation and work with the individual to put resources in place to stop the abuse, neglect, exploitation, ensure their safety. If the individual, if their goal is to remain in their home, we help put services in place to make sure that they can stay in their home as long as it is safely possible. Uh, We work to help people restore or retain independent functioning. 
And then also helping transition to a higher level of care if that's what's needed at that time. Um, we do have a wide variety of medical, housing, social, legal services that can be put in place to stop the abuse and prevent further mistreatment. Might there be an example of that a family member or somebody is kind of interfering and preventing action by either your agency or others um, for their own purposes. Have you seen examples of that where there's a conflict between recognizing that the, there is elder abuse there, but a family member may want to prevent any kind of legal action or what? Have you seen that? Yes, we have. And those situations are very difficult. We've seen, I think, both sides and um, in a situation where the client is willing to engage in our services and they have the capacity to make decisions for themselves, we are often able to help them put things in place to make sure that it's their wishes that are being honored, whether that's helping them establish a power of attorney who might not be that family member. I think that another challenging piece, though, is when the client is not interested in services and they refuse services. And like Omatayo mentioned previously, it's often for fear of retribution or knowing that they fully depend on this person. And if I just go along with what they say, that'll just be easier than causing a riff. And we have to respect that. If a person has capacity, we have to respect them refusing services. And that's often very difficult to accept but these are adults with rights, and we we do not have any authority to override their wishes if they have capacity. Off and on now, throughout this interview, we have been talking about the Arlington Adult Protective Services Program. So, Omatayo, tell us more about this program. Um, how long has it been there? Uh, what's the purpose? Who are the staff members? Uh, what are the roles? Uh, are there various uh, assignments or that each person who works in this, uh, uh, in this particular agency has. Uh, what do we need to know about the, the adult protective services? And, and as you're telling us that, is it true that adult protective services are pretty much the same around the country, or do they vary? Since this program is broadcast in other parts of the country, um, what do listeners outside the DMV area need to know about um, adult protective services? Adult Protective Services across the nation, um, we do the same things. How the agency is set up is individually done by the states. Um, here in Arlington, we are a small program. There are three APS, we say human clinician workers. There is the team lead, which is my position. Uh, my position, what I do, I do a little bit of supervision. I keep track of our stats, looking for the different trends that are happening within our county, as well as helping the team conduct investigations. We are a state-mandated program, and that is nationwide. APS is the only state-mandated program. And so what that means is we can't refer out. Once a report is made, we are mandated to investigate that report. 
And sometimes that gets lost in transition when people are not sure that they want to make a report, but they've called the day before and may have later spoken with the individual who we are now, who is now our client. And they're saying, oh, I figured it out. Um, There is no investigation that's needed. Well, we have to continue with our investigation to make sure that everything is fine. Um, Just because an investigation has started, we're not accusing anyone of anything. We just want to make sure that the person is safe. That's our role, to make sure that they are safe and in their home and they have capacity to make the decisions. In order for us to take an investigation, the person has to be 60 or older and the event has to have occurred in Arlington. For example, let's say that you came here and you live in Washington, D.C., but you came here and took $20,000 out of the bank to give to someone. We're investigating that because it happened here. We also take investigations for people under 60 who have been deemed to be incapacitated. Um, That could be something such as a brain disorder, someone who is diagnosed with intellectual disabilities, we do take those cases as well. As part of that, of trying to figure out what to do or to take action, I was wondering if if the uh, Adult Protective Services also has a definition for vulnerable adults. I mean, do you make the determination of whether or not to act or not to act based on the definition of vulnerable adults, is that part of the process? Yes. So the age, we do have an age requirement, which is anyone 60 and older. That That is one criteria that's met. The second criteria, it has to meet the stature for either physical abuse, which is the willful pain or restriction of someone. That physical abuse could even be giving someone Benadryl to make sure that they're asleep or putting up, if they have rails on their bed, putting up the rails on the bed so that they can't get out of the bed or locking the home from the outside, whereas though that individual can't get out of the home. That's physical abuse and it would meet our criteria. Self-neglect is hoarding or not taking your medications, uh, things of that nature. That would meet our criteria as well. Or neglect if you are put in in the role of being a caregiver, power of attorney, guardian, conservator, and you are not meeting this person's needs in order for them to have a safe and healthy life. That's neglect that would meet the criteria for us or financial exploitation, willful use of someone else's property for your own benefit. That would also meet our criteria or When we talk about mental abuse, threatening to put someone in a nursing home if they don't do something that you say, um, making someone fearful of you requires your assistance for their care needs. That meets our criteria as well. Um, Of course, sexual abuse or exploitation of someone of any kind, that those things meet our criteria um, and we would take it. But again, the incident has has to have happened here in Arlington. Because we mentioned earlier, Omotayo, 
about uh, the possibility of abuse going on in a nursing home if, say, an adult child says, comes to you, uh, your agency, and says, you know, I think things are going on at where my mom or my dad is. Can you follow up at that as well? Does your agency do that, your program? Yes. Um, they. It can't be something that's systematic. When it's systematic, the licensure, um, long-term licensure of the state of Virginia takes over. But if there is something going on and there are details provided of their individual loved one, yes, that we investigate. All right, Michaela, I wanted to get back to you. Uh, Amatayo has has explained the different types of situations that would warrant uh, some follow-up by the two of you and, and your staff uh, at uh, Adult Protective Services. And then if you're making the report, does all of this incident then, is that included in the report? And and do you need to also get the input from other agencies as needed? As you had mentioned earlier, there are other agencies that might be involved. W- what would be the steps then that would occur um, regarding a particular um, concern that you hear about? Any situation in which there's a suspicion of abuse, neglect, or exploitation should be reported. And we take that report in our electronic database where the details of the report are noted, in addition to demographic information, um, any collateral information, And then like we kind of touched on before, some situations must be immediately reported to other collaterals such as law enforcement or licensing. And examples of these situations would be sexual abuse, um, serious bodily injury or disease believed to be caused by abuse or neglect, any criminal activity involving abuse or neglect that places the adult in imminent danger of death or serious bodily harm. And also financial exploitation, those cases are always referred to law enforcement as well. And it sounds like there could be quite a few different agencies, depending on what the complaint is, could be involved. Do you have an example of something that, you know, you've seen that really involved a lot of different uh, uh, agencies? Sure. And Omatayo, feel free to chime in. But I think um, an example, let's take a sexual assault case at a nursing facility Um, that would require APS to notify law enforcement in addition to the uh, licensing board that oversees nursing facilities. And um, so that's two collateral authorities that we are required to notify in order for them to do their own investigation in addition to ours. And um, let's say we're in a group home. There is human rights that we partner with. Um, if it's sexual abuse or extreme physical abuse, again, we also partner with Arlington County's police department. We partner in that situation as well with the state licensure, long-term care licensure. Uh, for financial exploitation cases, we always partner with Arlington County's police department as well. And Omatayo, to that point then, is that what you're just explaining would be defined as a legal mandate, that it's more than just partnering because it seems like the right thing to do, but 
legally you your agency is required or your program is required to uh, take action is is that I just want to make sure that I, that our listeners understand that it's more than just partnering, but that there are legal requirements that you must meet. Talk, talk more about that. Yes. So for any extreme physical abuse, mostly when someone has ended up hospitalized for any reason, we are mandated um, legally to get Arlington Police Department involved. Um, same thing for financial exploitation, for financial exploitation, as well as um, physical abuse or sexual abuse. Just the mere fact of having a report of that nature requires us to contact Arlington Police Department and we have to collect the report number and state whether or not the police department has accepted the report and they're going to investigate. We also get involved with the sexual abuse cases. Most of the time, it is the special victims unit that gets involved and we do our investigations together simultaneously. So let's kind of look at this now. We've been really focusing a lot on the adult uh, protective services in Arlington. And so, Michaela, let's expand this a little bit. Um, we mentioned a little bit earlier, and it's always important to say things again in case folks didn't hear it before, that there are adult protective services available throughout the country. And are they always located in the area agencies on aging? Is that where people can find it? Or are there other places that people could look, especially if they're maybe in smaller rural areas or uh, where there might not be an area agency on aging. What what should people know in terms of a, a place to look if they really need help? Yes, APS is a state-mandated social services program and agencies are located all over the nation. So anyone can contact the social services agency of the jurisdiction in which the allegation occurred. Um, to your point, some of the more rural areas, uh, the social services departments will often cover a much larger area. And sometimes, like you said, you might not know which county is serving your area. Um, I would suggest referring to, as we mentioned before, the NAPSO website. It gives a really simple way of searching by state and then um, taking you to the state APS website where you can get further information about how the jurisdictions are broken down within that state. And let's let's talk a little bit about statistics. I mean, I'm sure our listeners know that folks are living longer now. There's a larger, older population. Uh, what What's going on out there? Are there many older adults that are victims of elder abuse in uh, in this country, maybe beyond? Um, is it becoming a bigger problem? If so, why? Um, tell us more about that situation. According to the National Council on Aging, as many as 5 million older Americans experience abuse every year. And at least 10% of adults age 65 and older will likely experience some form of elder abuse in a given year, with some older adults even simultaneously experiencing more than one type of abuse. And when it comes to financial abuse, it has been estimated 
to be at least um, the annual loss by victims of financial abuse has been estimated to be at least $37 billion. And I I think that um, trends related specifically with COVID has also caused an increase in what we have seen. People are were even more isolated than they were prior to that. Um, people were physically not allowed to be around each other and whether that was a caregiver having to sacrifice what they could provide to an older adult or um, I know this really affected our long-term care facilities in terms of the rate of um, COVID breakouts and I think that also led to a lot of staff turnover and um, really just put these already vulnerable people in an even more vulnerable position. And I'm wondering, and I would really like to hear from both of you on this. Uh, it, we've talked a lot about how we're, how both of you are dealing with circumstances that deal with uh, elder abuse. What part of your work focuses on reducing elder abuse risk? Are you and your colleagues spending most of your time, I wouldn't say putting out fires, but addressing issues where the elder abuse has already occurred, or is a part of your work um, to try to reduce the risk of elder abuse? And, and how do you do that? Of course, APS has a focus on reducing the risk of elder abuse. Um, you know, as we've mentioned, most of our clients are lacking a support system, which increases their chances of being taken advantage of. The benefit of APS is we are able to offer connections to services, for example, home-based care, legal intervention when needed, nutrition services, mental health support, um, connections to medical care. You know, often we are their only connection to the world outside of their home. And so they need our support for even things that seem simple to the rest of us, like reading their mail or describing the nature of a common predatory phone call so they don't end up in a scam situation. They know what to listen for and what not to reply to. Um, making sure that their benefits haven't lapsed. A, a big thing that we see when adults become less able to physically and cognitively care for themselves is they don't really check the mail. And they don't really answer the phone. And when things are communicated through the mail and over the phone, they miss a lot of things. Um, and even just providing a check-in every now and then to make sure they're doing okay. If the individual accepts the services and a determination is made that they would benefit from ongoing services, they can be referred to our adult services team. And we provide the intensive case management services to the client after the initial APS crisis has been resolved. So it's kind of just a, an ongoing monitoring. Some cases require more hands-on than others, of course, but it's a way to continue following the person, making sure that they don't immediately find themselves in a repeat situation that brought them to APS in the first place. And I suspected what you're referring to, Michaela, is uh, some of these services, that would be provided by the Area Agency on Aging. Is, is that correct? Yes. 
how can folks contact um, in case they are interested in those services? What would be the number or the website that they would contact? Sure. So our main number uh, is the same number Omatayo mentioned before. This is the main line for our aging and disability services division. It is 703-228-1700. And this division houses adult protective services, adult services, our senior adult mental health program, our nursing case management program, our developmental disabilities program, our RAF program, and our kind of first line of defense, the Aging and Disability Resource Center. Um, they are the amazing team who will address phone calls and walk-ins for people who are not yet connected to services. They will triage the situation, help them um, in their immediate need, and then refer to the other programs within our division as needed. Okay. And Omatayo, I wanted to get back to you also to ask as to uh, what you focus on. Michaela gave some suggestions and examples. Is your time spent mostly uh, addressing the issues of those who are already victims of elder abuse, or do you also spend a lot of time and in uh, reducing the risk in the first place? So initially when we receive reports, I, I'm going to say alleged victims um, because we don't always know whether or not the allegations are true or if there is some underlining conflict um, that we were called in to address. That is our initial thing. Um, one one thing that I definitely want to state is that Adult Protective Services comes out and yes, we're doing an investigation, but our goal is really to make sure that the individual is safe and can remain in their home with dignity and respect. Once I have, myself and my team have assessed the situation and we've determined that hopefully there is no abuse, neglect, or exploitation going on, we may offer services if that's what's needed. Um, oftentimes, we will refer to Michaela's team, Adult Protective Services, to put in some of those services that she mentioned, like nurse case management, senior adult mental health services, our in-home service agencies as well. Um, but yes, uh, initially, we are simply called to investigate an allegation of abuse, neglect, or exploitation. Okay. And it sounds like combating this problem of elder abuse is also going on on the national level. Do you, Would you say that's also happening throughout the country? Yes, I, I would definitely say so. Um, NAPSA is very much so involved. There's always an annual meeting where APS agencies across the country are invited to talk about the things that they're doing within their state and to see if other state agencies would benefit from the services, um, looking for new and innovative ways to combat abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Um, with our financial exploitation cases within the last five years, the federal government has also been involved as well, and they have a department especially where you have those mailing scams or the sweetheart scams that are happening either internationally or across the state lines, it's beneficial 
for the federal government to get involved. And they are involved in some of those cases. And there are times when our elderly population are able to get their money back. But at the very least, they're no longer losing the money that was lost. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time. Any, we both have given a lot of resources already. So I didn't know if you had any more resources to give or just final comments uh, for our listeners. We'll start with you, Michaela. Sure. So as we mentioned locally in Arlington County, anyone is welcome to call our main number for Aging and Disability Services Division, which again is the 703-228-1700. We have staff available Monday through Friday to provide resources, answer questions, engage in consults. Um, I do want to mention that even if you are not identified as a mandated reporter for Adult Protective Services, anybody can call, anybody can make a report, anybody can voice complaints. It doesn't matter uh, what what your role is. And then I would say nationally, um, in addition to NAPSA, EPS is monitored by the Department for Aging and Rehabilitative Services, DARS for short. Um, they're another great resource. Their website has a lot of information that anybody can access. In addition to the National Council on Aging, their website provides like, fact sheets and resources for older adults and caregivers that can be very helpful, especially if people aren't quite sure where to start. One of the things I want to highlight with Adult Protective Services, we understand that at times someone knocking on your door can be daunting. However, we are really there to help. Our main focus is to help you connect with the resources that are going to be beneficial. And if you are experiencing elder abuse, you can make the report for yourself anonymously. And we get in there and we support you as best that we can and place you in a safe situation. Well, I think that sums it up very nicely. And I want to thank Michaela Monday and Amatayo Daniels, Human Services Clinicians with the Adult Protective Services at Arlington County Department of Human Services. Thank you both for joining me today. Well, and you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And at that site, you can access all of our Aging Matters radio programs, the TV show episodes, and also the Aging Matters podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Steve Lack Audio. To learn more about that company, log on to steveflackaudio.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.